welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. Special interest episode one, word of mouth. Before I begin this episode proper, there is an important analytical distinction that needs to be made between the term oral history and oral tradition. The former, in its current format, refers to the collection of historical data and documents through scientific means and modern methods of recording. The latter is what we are here to discuss and is used to transmit knowledge along with cultural and religious practices down the generations via a system of memory and oral transmission. On the topic of oral tradition, there is a great deal to say, as there are many different cultures that practice or have practiced it over the millennia. To do them all due respect is a whole podcast series on its own, and I really don't have the expertise to deal with a project of that scope and focus. So, Despite my earlier intentions, I have narrowed the field of view right down and will concentrate on the Greek form of oral tradition used by Homer and his counterparts in antiquity. Like Heinrich Schliemann, my methods might be rough, uncouth and coarse, but unlike he, I understand I don't have to dig too deeply into the field to impart some of Homer's genius. In the West, it is an art that has almost completely ceased to be exercised and from the moment the Greeks started scratching the first alphabet on clay tablets, and that alphabet spread through Europe and the world, our no doubt tens of thousand year old collective verbal memory began to crumble. Today, I have trouble remembering my own phone number and relying on an almost exhaustive system of recorded memory. Files saved to hard disks, photos uploaded to social media, and contact lists so organic and antiquated that I sit there looking at the phone sometimes, wondering who exactly or what exactly the contact the weird guy is. One day I'll call and find out but I'm kind of worried the voicemail message I hear will be in my own voice. However, Homer and the other bards travelling Greece had no such method to record the nearly 16,000 lines of the Iliad, and that would have only been one song in the repertoire. I can't imagine too many people shouting out encore after the three days it probably took to work through Achilles and his anger problems in a full recitation of the epic. It must have been only one song in their catalogue. Fortunately, they didn't need to remember all the lines. As we'll see in this episode, there is more than one way to, as the saying goes, peel a banana. We're going to work through the techniques used by Homer and his colleagues to remember and distribute monumental oral works. I'll fixate on the ways these epic composers use their craft to perform those works and how they entertained crowds back then and still to this day. The Iliad as we know it is a codified and concrete recording of a series of events set against the backdrop of a probably mythical war. These events transpired up to a thousand years before their setting in text for posterity's study. Those interim years, between event and publishing, saw the evolution of the epics. In the early days of the oral tradition, they would have been most likely just a collection of different stories bearing little to no resemblance to today's format. As each new verse maker, across each new generation applied his craft to the stories, they would have begun to take on a more central narrative, gaining a uniform structure. Each telling of the story would have varied from the next, sometimes wildly, depending on the skill of the bard and the appeal of the audience. The lion's share of the work was done by the oral tradition itself, and its perpetuation over the centuries is testimony to its success. Right, let's break down the tradition into some of its fundamentals so we can have a look at the inner workings. Epithets were discussed in the previous episode, so we'll start, first and foremost, with an old adage. That you never let the truth ruin a good story and the ancient bards most certainly did not. But it's also important that the story has a basis in a world of truths, otherwise the people listening to it won't be able to relate. Many of our modern fairy tales and myths subscribe to this theory as well, and a great example of this is a story of the Pied Piper. A story that perhaps began with a very real disappearance of the children from the German town of Hamelin in the 13th century CE. The earliest record of the town, 
written in 1384, ominously states, and I quote, It has been 100 years since our children left. Either a rat infestation brought a disease like bubonic plague through the town which killed all but a few children, or a priest singing sweet hymns to the accompaniment of a little woodwind section convinced the children to march off on crusade. The catastrophic disaster that was the children's crusade was around the right time too. It might have been disease, forced immigration, or abduction by marauding Mongol hordes that were the real cause, but over the years and the retelling of the story it has turned into a haunting, moralistic lesson in being true to one's word. Regardless in whichever, a magic piper who could hypnotise children and rats alike to walk off into their respective dooms is highly unlikely at best. The lesson at the heart of the tale is the important thing, and through metaphor, allegory, and nuance it is delivered to the listener. As we've seen in the previous episodes, there is enough historical fact within the Iliad and the Odyssey that despite the gods imposing their will directly on the events, we can still see those events as occurring in a very real, though ancient world. The places existed, the gods were certainly worshipped, and many of the affectations, the arms and armour mentioned, have been dug up through archaeology. From there the flower of metaphor begins to bud, and looking at it face on, it seems fantastical. The Trojans managed to defy the Greek heroes of legend for ten years. Not only that, as the Iliad picks up with Hector at the forefront of the fighting, managed to beat the invaders back to their ships and very nearly send them packing back to Greece in disgrace. Evidently courageous, but it would be fair to assume also, smart people, these Trojans. After holding out for a number of years against names like Menelaus, Agamemnon, Achilles, and Odysseus, that's a very safe assumption to make. But then it appears they abandoned reason for madness and dragged into the city an enormous horse monument left by the supposedly retreating Greeks as a tribute to Poseidon. I hear you ask, what relevance has a giant horse with the Greek god of the sea and how would leaving it unattended help the Archaeans return home? Well, Poseidon was more than just a god who liked the water. He also had a thing for horses and even more interestingly, earthquakes. Presumably, when the Greeks decided to lay their trap for the Trojans, it was easier to leave a wooden horse than it was a large jar of water or an earthquake to appease Poseidon for a safe trip home. As it turns out, it was far easier to secret 30 Archean heroes inside of a giant wooden horse, and the Trojans, who revered Poseidon, decided to take the construction back to the temple precinct of Troy. Dismantling part of the wall to accommodate the oversized equine offering in the process, the defenders left a breach in the walls that had protected them for 10 years bringing disaster within their walls and leaving a yawning hole for the rest of the Greek force to pour through, the faithful of Apollo were the administers of their own poison. The goods of Mycenaean make uncovered in excavations at Troy proves the steady stream of trade between Archean and Trojan. Let's assume they indeed fought as well. What could the story of the horse meant, or begun to mean over the generations of its being told? The various bards composing and adding to the story over the centuries before its final codification wouldn't have had any access to eyewitness accounts, and would have had to interpret the legends for themselves. Some of the eastern civilizations, of which the Greeks had contact with, were renowned for using siege equipment that had animal names. These battering rams would also be covered in soaked horse hides to make them inflammable. Perhaps such a device was used to create a breach in the walls of Troy and allow the men of Agamemnon access. Even more metaphorical would be the theory that it was an earthquake that damaged the walls, and not a siege device. Remembering that Poseidon was also the god of earthquakes, it's easy to see how this event could have been misconstrued into the Trojan legend. Adding to this possibility is the archaeological evidence that supports Troy of the Iliad having been damaged heavily by an earthquake. Today the term, Trojan horse, is pure metaphor, and it's possible that it was meant as such by the ancients too. 
The next trick that we'll pull out of Homer's repertoire relates to the metre of the poetry, the dactylic hexameter verse used to compose the epics of antiquity. It's a style almost completely unsuited to the English language, so without a background in poetry, which I most certainly do not have, it's a very difficult thing to describe in form and composition. Hexameter, in Greek, is hexametron, and as usual is created by two words, hexa, meaning six, and metron, meaning measure, and is used poetically to describe how many measures or bars a line of poetry takes to complete. The dactylic element describes the type of syllables used in each bar, in literary terms, a dactyl simply means a long syllable followed by two shorts. Coming from the Greek word for finger, a great way to remember what a dactyl means is to simply look at your index finger from the knuckle towards the nail. It is a long bone followed by two shorter ones. It's this rhythmic progression through the song that helped epic composers like Homer remember which word or sound was to come next. This clever, mnemonic artifice was the real powerhouse behind the ability to recall such lengthy and complex stories. As stated, English is not suited to the style, although most famously Henry Wadsworth Longfellow composed in the metre being one of the few to do so successfully. To give you a feel for how hexameter verse sounded, I'll sing to you the first line of the Iliad in ancient Greek, with two massive disclaimers before I proceed. Firstly, I've always wanted to be a singer, but my voice keeps holding me back, and voice is important, apparently. Second, Ancient Greek is a dead language and as such has no native speakers so scholars can only make an educated guess at how it would have sounded in the 8th century BCE. So, to refresh, in English, the first line of the Iliad goes, Rage, goddess, sing the rage of Peleus's son, Achilles. Sung in ancient Greek, it would sound roughly like the following. Men in I beg forgiveness for anyone that has nightmares after that, but I hope it conveyed a measure of the beat. It's an ancient and almost alien sound, but make no mistake, hexameter is the language of epic composition, and even the Roman poet and epic composer Virgil constructed his famous Aeneid in the style to firmly attach it and Rome to the legends of Troy. The next device Homer used to not only support his performance but help in the preservation to this day of his text is knowing how to capture an audience's immediate attention. In lengthy performances of any kind, it's important to keep the crowd engaged and interested, lest they begin to throw tomatoes and rotten eggs at you, all the while screaming, Next! He solved this problem by starting his stories at the most exciting part and working forward and backwards from there to fill in the gaps in extremely broad strokes. The war as stated, against Troy lasted for 10 years, yet we only joined the Archaeans sometime in the ninth year and only for 40 odd days all up. Taken as a plotline, the composer's genius starts his tale right at the climax of a long and no doubt drawn out conflict. Taking the single most momentous thing to occur in a decade of loss, privation and disease and placed it straight under the microscope. So much so, that we learn very little about how the conflict started and in turn nothing save prophecy for how it will conclude. As for the Odyssey, it's in the seventh year of the eponymous hero's wayward journey home, right when he's choosing between homecoming and immortality, and right when the shooters are about to kill his son Telemachus and force his wife's hand in marriage. The sense of timing from Homer helps to immediately engage the listener. Simplicity of theme is another way to help the audience feel relevant to the message transmitted by the epics. In the Iliad, the main themes are rage, loss, glory, duty and family. 
One particularly visceral scene that brings those themes together occurs in Book 6 of the Iliad. In it, Hector is marching through the city of Troy towards the Sian Gate, intent on returning to the battle raging outside. Before he could pass through that portal, above which so much bloodshed in the plain had been viewed, his wife, Andromache, caught up to him with their son, Astyanax, in tow. In a scene of extremely deep pathos, the wife of Hector beseeches him to stay within the city of Troy and not return to the plain. There, she fears, he will soon fall and with him any hope the Trojans have of victory over the Archaeans. She tells him, in what amounts to a funeral lamentation, that Achilles has already killed her father, seven of her brothers, and enslaved her mother. That he, Hector, is now her father, mother, brother, along with being her stalwart husband, inferring that he is all she has left in the world. Moreover, would he so willingly let her become a widow, and their son an orphan? This fate would be terrible enough in our era, but in the Bronze Age, it would have been akin to death. In response, Hector concedes his wife's point, but tells her it is not for him to skulk behind the walls whilst other Trojans fight and die in the field of Troy. How could he bear that shame? Also, there is no glory to be won within the walls of Troy, and that only outside can he win fame for he and his family. The tears falling from the eyes of Andromache are all Homer tells us about her understanding, and then Hector reaches out for his son, Astyanax. The child initially shies away in fright, as he is not used to the sight of his father in gleaming bronze armour, and the horsehair plume coming from Hector's helmet is particularly disconcerting for the babe. Both mother and father laugh lovingly, and the hero of Troy removes his helm, takes up his son, kisses him, and fondles him in his arms for a moment, whispering a soft prayer to Zeus for the boy's future. It is a moment storied with a deep sense of familial affections, and as Hector hands his son back to the waiting maid, it will be the last time he ever sees his family. For poor Andromache, she will see her husband one last time, but it will be a moment of agony as he is dragged away from the battlefield dead by a chariot-mounted Achilles. This recognisable, relatable and thematic-based approach provides Homer's work with a great level of complexity due to the interplay between said themes and still gives scholars much to compartmentalise in this day. The last trick I'll describe used by the ancient bards was the placement of long, formulaic action sequences. These could be used at different stages throughout the epic to add a little flavour to events and by and large could be made up on the fly. They're obvious by their generic nature and generally littered with anachronisms as the reciter is pressing upon the scene what he himself knows or believes about the activity and period being discussed. An example I can give is one I cited in the first episode and it portrays Odysseus being armed by Meriones before heading out on a nighttime raid. Quoting directly from Book 10 of the Iliad, Homer tells us the following by way of formulaic phrase. And Meriones gave to Odysseus a bow and a quiver and a sword, and about his head he set a helm wrought of hide. With many a tight stretched thong was it made stiff within, while without the white teeth of a boar of gleaming tusks was set thick on this side and that, and within was fixed with a lining of felt. In archaic and classical Greek, the professional performers of epics were known as rhapsodes in English, or rhapsodos in Greek. From the words raptin, meaning to sew or stitch, and ide, meaning song, taken literally, it's a singer who is stitching songs together. These often very specific but stock sequences are used to stitch together greater sections of the plotline. In the Iliad, such phrases take the form of warriors being armed for combat and ships being readied for sailing. 
Before I move on, I'd just like to save you all for some needless Googling, especially if, like me, you believe Mr. Portokalos in my big fat Greek wedding. Whereby he states that every English word has its origin in Greek, I assumed that the term rhapsodes was the father of the modern musical term rap or rapping. Imagine it, Homer and Hesiod in a tavern, downtown Athens, with a view to the Acropolis, slinging verses of hexameter at each other, receiving the fickle crowd's applauses and jeers in some ancient version of Eight Mile. Alas, it was simply too good to be true, and I decided to move on to things more firmly rooted in reality. Those listed are the main weapons in Homer's and the other epic performers' arsenals. Epithet, to give extraordinary control over the names of characters and events to fit the metre of hexameter verse, structuring a regimented and predictable beat. Climactic beginnings, relatable themes, and flexibility all combine to draw the listener into the depths of the story's often complex levels of definition. These enchanting tales come down to us from another world, an age of heroes and gods, but they still scream relevance to our own world today, even separated as those two worlds are by 3,000 years of history. I hope you all enjoyed that little foray into the traditions of Homeric epic. As discussed at the beginning, this is really just skimming the surface of what is a vast, convoluted and intricate discipline which has slowly crystallised over the millennia into the vast wealth of historic knowledge we have at our fingertips for perusal. Up next is something I'm really excited to talk to you about, the woman, the myth and the legend, part one of my biographical series on the face that launched a thousand ships, Helen of Sparta, coming out on the 2nd of February. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. Okay, so not so many at all this mini mid-bump episode. I did try to be brief. Pinky swear. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos, and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter, at Spartan underscore history, and on Facebook too, at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode and are keen to hear more, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from, and leave a review. Enjoy the outro. See you next time.